Do you know that our emotion drives our behaviors? We need all of our emotions for thinking, problem solving, focus attention, and for many more. We are neurobiologically wired and to learn anything, our mind must be focused and our emotions need to feel in balance. Have you ever reflected on what feeling your success relies on or what feeling we all need to be filled to become successful? Hi, this is Azim Sahib, a human capital specialist. I want to personally welcome you and thank you for joining us today. We are really glad you are here because this podcast is designed to inspire people to live a meaningful life and pursue your passion. Welcome to EI Cafe with Azim Season 5. I give a late look back at the lives and business of today's most important elements with emotional intelligence. You will learn how emotional intelligence can be a key factor for your success in both personal and professional life. You will hear key life lessons and tips from most prominent personalities, business leaders, entrepreneurs, EI practitioners and executive coaches from all over the world. Just to let you know, you can watch the video version of this podcast on my YouTube channel as well. So sit back, relax with a cup of coffee and let's get into the show. This is EI Cafe with Azim. A 30 minutes of valuable learning. can benefit from coaching and have from having a coach and serving as one for someone else. He says that a coaching relationship moves beyond mentoring or sponsoring. In in that focuses on the long-term values and aspirations. The best coaches encourage us positive mindset and ask the probing questions to help people to make the best choices, not in their careers, but in also your personal life. But the question is how we can cultivate a culture of coaching. A very warm welcome to the show for the EI Cafe with Azim Season 5. I'm your host, Azim Sahib, a human capital specialist, a Lego Series Play facilitator, an ICF certified coach, and an emotional intelligent practitioner. Here we're again for another interesting episode, a 30 minutes of valuable learning. In today's episode, we are going to talk about creating a culture of coaching and development using emotional intelligence. Of course, it's a great privilege and honor to have this particular guest on my show today. Let me have this introduction for him. If I, I will not introduce him this way, I'm not going to make justice for this particular individual. Author of many amazing books, helping people change, regional leader, and a distinguished university professor at Case Western Reserve University. is one of the leading experts in leadership development and emotional intelligence. He has spent 55 plus years studying on human behaviors, which has revolutionized the management, education, and health 
spawned the new industry of competency consultants, researchers, academics, and executive coaches. He has many awards, and the most recent one is Lifetime Achievement Award for Contribution to Leadership Coaching from Coaching at Work magazine. A little bit of fun fact about my guest today. It's about he enjoys photography, listening to jazz and 60s rock music. Ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome Professor Richard Boyasis. Thank you, Azim, and everybody in the audience. Ah, yes. So, Professor, thank you very much for giving this amazing opportunity. It is a pleasure and a honor to have my, my show. Um, I know I've been coming around you from last uh, November, I guess. You've been busy schedule. Yes, here we are. So, once again, again, thank you very much for having uh, you in this particular element with your valuable time. Without further ado, uh, let's get into the main topic, um, creating a culture of coaching and development using emotional intelligence. But before I go there, I, I, you know, I, I was um, listening to one of your um, interviews, uh, which was on LinkedIn. And I heard that you studied uh, in your early career to be an astronautics. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I, I, um, I always wanted to go into the space program. Right. I actually wanted to go into space, but in those days, I wasn't. I wore glasses, so I couldn't. But um, yeah, my first career, formal career, was designing control systems for interplanetary vehicles. Yeah. So, and then you moved into human behaviors. What? Made well, I shift? actually shifted into psychology. Yeah. You know I mean? So, what made this shift? I went out and worked as as a research scientist, an aerospace scientist, and I was. I and my parents were immigrants from Greece. My father was a waiter. I was putting myself through MIT with money I'd made from my music, playing music in bands and other work, but I just ran out of money and okay. um, a lot of student debt. So they got me a job for Northrop Norair in California. I was working on some of the, in 1966 and early 67, working on some of the space vehicles. And I discovered that in terms of the day-to-day -day work, it was boring. So I went back to MIT, I finished my degree, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to go in. Every, every relative of mine, every male relative on our side of the Atlantic was in the restaurant business. That's mm. what Greeks did. When, and yeah. my father had immigrated, immediately went into the U.S. Army, you know, fought through Europe and Germany and France and all that, came out and became a waiter. So I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't think I was really good enough to go professional in my music. And right. I said, okay, I might, I might as well go into management. So I took some courses at the School of Management at MIT because, and they sounded really foolish to me, organizational psychology. Um, but the professor, David Kolb, uh, who you may know from his experiential learning work later, years later, um, at that point hadn't finished his doctorate yet at Harvard, was about to. And he mentioned in his description of the course that there'd be no tests. So I raced to his classroom <laughs> to get in because it turns out I'm test phobic. I hate taking tests. Um, and he, during the process of that course, introduced me to psychology. I said I wanted to do my paper on um, how managers don't help their subordinates because that's what I thought happened out at Northrop. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, we had two departments of Sheldon's, if you watch Big Bang Theory. Okay. I mean, really scary, smart folks. And I couldn't believe how little the managers got out of us because they just, they were nerds themselves. They didn't understand. So he asked me to work with some real data they'd collected at MIT on how the 30-year-old students were helping each other or not. He loved what I did, offered me a job doing research. We ended up publishing the study. He got me into PhD seminars with people like Ed Shine and Dave McClelland and wow. um, yeah, people who were giants in the field. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> I was new to the field. And the next thing I know, you know, Ed and uh, Ed Shine and David and, and David McClelland mm -hmm. took me under their wing and they got me into Harvard and the PhD program in psychology. And that was it. You know, it's, I was off and running. Wow. I, I think because I, I read you have written more than 200 articles and, you know, many books. I think that itself, right. a lot of research involved in terms of human behaviors and the psychology aspect. Um, getting back to the topic, you know, in, in today's context, people are talking about a lot of coaching, right? right. Um, even in your, in your book, Helping People Change, you talk a lot about this um, compassionate coaching with compliance coaching, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, in today's context, um, Professor, what do you think? How important coaching as a tool for leaders? Uh, yeah. How, how important me, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me offer a few data points to illustrate how critical it is. Before COVID, 76% of the people with full-time jobs in, the, in North America, 83% in Europe, and 81% in Japan. I don't know Sri Lanka, India, Malaysia, but I hear the same sense. That percentage of people with full-time jobs were not engaged in their work. That is a massive human capital motivation crisis. And that was before COVID. Now, because of all the stress from COVID and the disruptions and all the political things going on, uh, I, I don't know, uh, I haven't looked at the data uh, in Sri Lanka uh, in the last uh, few months, but I know as of this week in the U.S., um, there are 11 million jobs open and something like um, 6 million people quit their jobs. They were doing fine. They just didn't like it anymore. So there's this massive disruption going on, mm -hmm. and it's, called, it's being called the Great Resignation. Yeah, you do, yeah. And I think it's not it, – part of it's the fear that COVID – and social isolation has caused in everybody. Part of it's the fear going on between what's going to happen with, you know, uh, Putin and Ukraine, what's going to happen with, um, you know, the rocket man, you know, in North Korea, what's going to happen with the Chinese, you know, attempt to take over Taiwan. I mean, again, we feel like we're on the brink of war in many mm. different sectors. Mm. So you add all that together and people are saying, you know, I don't want to live like this. So the central question is, why aren't people engaged in their work? Now, in one of our books, I don't know, a number of years ago, I, I have found, because I was on the faculty of Asade in uh, Barcelona for 20 years, and I spent a lot of time in Europe, and I found this study that they did of 1,800 MBA graduates and MBA graduates are famous for they leave whatever company they go to work with after they graduate within six to eight months. 
So they interviewed 1,800 MBA graduates two years after they graduated. And they said, why did you go to work for the company you're now working for? And why are you choosing to stay, assuming you are? Hmm. And they listed all of the things that came out on 1,800 MBA grads across all of Europe. Money, salary, comp, benefits was seventh. Seriously? Seventh. What were the first six? Opportunity to grow and develop, opportunities to get developed and train, opportunities for novelty. It was all around the theme of development. Mm -hmm. So you quickly understood that if organizations wanted to attract people, they had to offer an interesting work. Now, I am not talking about hourly workers. I'm not talking about people that don't have marketable skills. For them, the pay and some of those issues of benefits are, of course, tantamount. Mm -hmm. But for everybody else, all of the skilled workers, you know, from um, computer programmers to nurses to people that are good at sales, and, and you know, because of your practice as a coach and as an EI professional, people that are good with people end up having a very, very marketable talent, skill. And for those folks, they're looking for something more. And it turns out that it's around. I, I remember in um, around 2012 in Europe, I guess I was doing talks for different uh, Cafuscati, Di Venezia, and Alba in Greece, and, and different MBA programs around Europe. And I was struck with the fact that for the first time in my experience, I mean, I've been going back to Europe and seeing my family in Greece and others uh, since 1950. And we've been go- I've been going my- now for the past 45 years, my wife and I every year, uh, back to Greece. But we- I've been going to Europe once a month. For the first time, I was hearing people, 30-year-olds, saying that they were leaving jobs for the big cons- companies, the consulting companies, you know, the Procter and Gamble's, American Express, mm-hmm. the big. And I'd say, you know, why? And they said, well, I want to start my own business. And I said, you're leaving a good job, but you don't have another job? They said, no. I said, aren't you worried? This was the key. They said, no. Now, I had never heard that before in all these decades. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> What we have, and I believe you'd see it, you see it everywhere, we have a massive talent, and it's not just a generational issue. Everybody's complaining about yeah. millennials or Gen Z. It's not that. It's everybody. And we have a massive misjuncture. Mis- now, <clears throat> let's go back to that data point about why are people choosing to stay with an organization. Um, we know that, as Marcus Buckingham said in one of his books, um, People don't leave organizations, they leave managers. And we know from the research in management and leadership that the relationship to your immediate boss is key. Well, I've been asking the question in my, I give about, um, it was about an average of one speech every two weeks in some part of the world. These days I'm giving several webinars like this a week, but um, I've been asking this question to audiences and literally the 45 or 50 countries that I've been in physically into various audiences since 1999. Who helped you the most? 
And if I ask people to reflect on who helped them the most become who they are in their whole life, they come up, you know, often they'll mention a mother, father, grandparent, aunt or uncle. Then they'll mention often a a teacher in school Mm -hmm. or a professor, maybe Mm -hmm. a coach, sports coach. Um, in, in Sri Lanka, I'm sure a cricket coach would be come up high on the list. Of Absolutely, course. yes. Um, and, and they sometimes mention the first manager they ever had. And that's it. Nobody after that. And when you probe how, what did that person say or do, you discover something profound that you mentioned that we – Melvin Smith and I decided to call in 2003 coaching with compassion using the more Confucian interpretation of compassion, opening yourself up to others. Because we think that's where you see the essence of a great relationship. And it's that you care, the manager cares, or the person who is helping, they trust the person, they respect them, They ask questions. They don't tell them what to do. And what we discovered, and now 20 years, almost 20 years later, with a bunch of fMRI neurological studies, we now have the evidence to say that when you tell people what they do, when you give them feedback, even if it's positive, you put them into a neurological activation that puts them closing down. They literally close their mind cognitively, Emotionally and perceptually, they get impaired. Mm. Mm. So the whole idea of a manager is supposed to tell people what to do, bull. Um, A coach is supposed to give people tips, bull. A mentor is supposed to tell you where to go, bull. All of that stuff is what we say from the receiver side is a helping bully. Now, you're in a part of the world, in in a culture, And even if you go to some of the cultures not that far from Sri Lanka and India, Malaysia, other Mm. Thailand where I've worked, it's very clear that you have a cultural belief that you should respect authorities, which is different than ours in which we start by distrusting authority. But even with that, the cultural norm is when somebody says those things to you, you nod your head, smile, thank them very much. You may even bow. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't pay attention. You still don't listen because it's not what you want to do. And the number of executives, 40, 50, 60 year olds, I deal with, whether they're physicians or, or executives, um, of a number from Sri Lanka in the past, but Indians, Malaysians, of course, mm. Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Asian, mm. who basically say, you know, I've, I've been a dentist, I've been a surgeon, I've been a, an engineer, but now I'm, I want to do this. That's why I'm coming to you. And I'll say, why did you do this for so long? My parents wanted me to. So uh, they have finally they have a midlife crisis and they say, that's yeah. it, you know, yeah. time out. I'm doing what I want to do. So, And we found this to be the case everywhere in the world. That's why we began to look at the power of engaging people's desire for Mm. their dream, Mm. which includes a deep sense of purpose, includes Mm. your core values. And I believe that that's what's missing 
in most people's relationship to their bosses and therefore why they're not engaged in their work. You know, does, does the boss or the manager give you a sense of context? I'll, I'll give you a brief example. September 1964, I've just started my bachelor's program at MIT, wanting to focus on aeronautics and astronautics, mostly on the space side. And I got assigned as a part of one of my seminars to a project at the instrumentation labs, which is a, a later was an offshoot from MIT, but it was a part of the MIT labs that did a lot of the research and development. And I, I got enough security clearance to walk in the door. And the project manager said to me when he sat me down, um, and he was the project manager for part of the lunar excursion module. This is 1964. So this is way before we actually landed on the moon. And he said, you don't know much yet. And I said, I know, I know. I'm not, I'm not arrogant about that. And he said, therefore, I can't ask you to do some of the really interesting kind of stuff. sexy stuff. I said, I understand. He said, but I want you to help us with the navigation system. I said, really, how? He said, part of the navigation system, when we land on the moon, um, and then later landing, preparing to land on Mars, is going to be laser-based. And we need to have very precise measurements from the lasers. Now, in 64, lasers were still kind of new. He said, we have to have very precise measurements. We have to know whether or not we're coming down on a two-inch or two-foot boulder or a two-inch rock or a piece of two-millimeter dust. He said, we need very precise measurements. And right now, we don't know which lasers to use. Mm -hmm. uh, there are three different gas-based lasers that are in contention. And I said, wow. He said, okay, so I want you to help us calibrate them to find out how much dispersal they'll, they'll be. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting in a dark room, you know, my one day a week for that semester, mm -hmm. measuring the distribution of the light a certain number of feet away. And periodically, if I if it was at the clearance level that I was satisfied, he would invite me to a project meeting. And it was exciting. It was exciting, even though I was doing one of those, you know, kind of menial things, you know, measuring dispersal. He helped me to understand that it was a part of a very important issue on a very important and exciting project. Context, purpose. Mm. That's the kind of stuff. And, and unfortunately, as you know from reading our book, we have the neurological evidence to say when managers or executives try to be leaders and they focus mm. on the financials, mm. they do the opposite mm. because the financials focus, there's necessary, but it, it actually causes us to activate what Tony Jack calls the analytic network. And when you're doing that, it helps you solve a problem, but it closes you down to new ideas. Mm. So... When you think about a manager um, engaging the person, the people that work for them or with them, it's not to tell them what to do. It's quite the opposite. It's not even giving them feedback. I mean, a lot of people think feedback is coaching. It's not. And if it, unless it's done in a very, very specific, specific way, way, it's not just specific behavior, but I mean, it, the condition is where the person really wants the feedback. Mm -hmm. Look, most subordinates, when you know their boss gives them feedback, 
they nod their head like you know you're doing with me right now yes you know and you smile but they're doing it with their fingers in their ears yes. they're saying oh yes that's very helpful thank you because they're not going to pay attention mm. but you make believe because you're supposed to so the dilemma is most of the time feedback is um only useful if you want to get rid of somebody so what you're saying is you're asking the right questions to trigger his or a pea or you say like positively emotional yes. attractors so yes. so so in that line um, professor i would like to come in this particular context where how does emotional intelligence i know you have worked with uh, dr daniel goldman and for your record i got the opportunity for in last october to share the stage at virtual summit on emotional intelligence um in that context um how does emotional intelligence this pea and nea yeah right right get get connected well i <laughs> what we now call emotional and social intelligence are competencies our approach dan's mind etc is to look at the behavior mm. not the traits i started doing the first research study on competencies that predict performance of managers in 1970 and i've been doing a lot of them my 1982 book was the first book. empirical study of competencies related to actual performance mm. of different levels of managers and executives in both mm. government and private sector mm. so by the time 1995 came along and dan's book came out um and was a mega hit he called me and said hey you're the one actually doing this research <laughs> um let's you know and he and I went to graduate school together we were classmates and and social friends and all the rest right. of so i have done hundreds of these studies i'm still supervising many of them with doctoral students i'm doing one right now one of the largest medical centers in the us looking at dem that observed emotional and social intelligence behavior of the physicians related to their actual clinical outcomes mm. nobody's done this yet i'm doing two studies doing that with coaches well you know your coach all these certification models that are based on competencies yeah it's all mirrors and blue smoke there's no research behind it i mean they do surveys but i showed my 1982 book that half of what you identify through surveys is either irrelevant or opposite mm. so what is it well if part of a um motivating and engaging relationship between let's just call them a boss and their subordinate mm -hmm. is a quality of mutual caring mm -hmm. we call compassion what do you need to feel and show that you need emotional intelligence i mean you have to be able to be in touch with your emotions and and the social intelligence the emotions of others if you're going to ask as you just mentioned the right questions at the right time to get people out and feel engaged and contribute use their talent you have to have emotional and social intelligence and the mistake people made for too many decades actually it started at about 1900 was that the determining factor for effectiveness in any professional or managerial or leader job was your cognitive intelligence. Mm. That was a gross manipulation and a false start. I mean, it actually you can generate the you could look at historically the epidemiology of it. Mm. And it turns out a lot of it was going into World War 1 when a lot of countries wanted to figure out who to hand rifles to. 
and they decided they didn't want to hand rifles to people who at the time, excuse the expression, they thought were idiots. <laughs> so they created the field of emotion, of cognitive intelligence testing because they wanted to know that somebody could kind of do an if then statement, you know, knew not to point it at one of their friends, you know, the gun and all. I mean, it sounds stupid, but that's where it started. And because um, there was this reverence for this part of it, uh, what grew up was, and I really blame Rene Descartes for a lot of this and certain of the philosophers who, you know, spend so much time in their own heads. They don't stop and think that that's not what happens in real life. In real life, I mean, look, I have published research showing that to be really effective as um, a senior partner in one of these massive accounting consulting firms or a financial services executive or the leading crisis firefighting teams, um, a number, a Catholic pastor, priest, an engineer, uh, you know, uh, not even a manager, just an engineer at a, ma a large company, all of these jobs, you have to demonstrate a certain amount of cognitive intelligence. But you also have to demonstrate a certain amount of emotional intelligence and a certain amount of social intelligence. And it's the combination of all three that enable you to be effective because you have to handle your own emotions. I mean, if you can't do emotional self-control and you fly off the handle, you're useless. People will avoid you, whether you're a parent or a manager. Same thing with physicians, nurses, coaches, social intelligence. You need to connect with the emotions of the other person. You have to ask them, as you pointed out, you have to ask them questions that open up possibilities. And you also have to figure it out yourself, what's going on. So it is the combination of these three forms of intelligence that ends up being so important. And we have proof of that in these published studies. What's also shown is that no one of these makes up for the other. So there's no amount of cognitive intelligence that will make up for you know, you can't make eye contact. <clears throat> and um, in a neighboring country of yours, I remember a few years back, uh, Naranya Merti, who, you know, is a, a yeah. great entrepreneur, uh, did something when he created Infosys that was amazing. He said, I want to create a family atmosphere. See, he, he had this feeling, and that's what he said it was, that these very analytic, he didn't use those terms, but very <laughs> nerdy, he didn't yeah, call them that either, yeah. programmers needed something. What they needed was a family feeling to cover the social part. Yes. And a way of talking to each other. And he modeled it. I mean, he was, he was brilliant on all three of these forms of intelligence. So no amount of cognitive can make up for the other, and no amount of emotional intelligence make up if you can't figure out how to balance yeah. your checkbook. Because why, why I ask this, Professor, because when the coaches say, like, it, they get into the problem-solving methodology, but it's not problem-solving. It's about seeing the possibility of the people asking the right, right. questions, not, right. not getting to it. I mean, it's not to say that problem-solving isn't relevant. It is. Yeah, yeah. But if you, if you make that the context of your coaching or your conversation, it, it makes the other person feel like an instrument, like a human resource. And that doesn't make you feel good, whether the person's your subordinate or one of your children. Mm, absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, 
I think we're coming to the end of our time. It is very, very rich context. Thank you very much for sharing your valuable inputs. Um, one of my last question I want to you know penetrate is, what would be the key aspects of developing a coaching culture in an organization? Because ah, a, lot, a, lot fascinating. Of people, a lot of people are talking yeah. about it and I'm also involved in um, coaching a lot of people in an organizations, right. but what would be the key developing for our audience to pace and okay. a lot of leaders might be listening. In chapter eight, we talked about this in the Helping People Change book. Our contention is that if we really want to get over this motivation crisis, this engagement crisis, and have people bring their whole talent to work, mm. right now, I doubt that much of their talent is showing up, even if their body does. Well, now re remote working, their body doesn't. But anyway, we have to help organizations develop a culture of development that complements the culture of performance. Doesn't supplant it, complements it. Mm. We need the culture of performance. Otherwise, you're not fulfilling your purpose. But people have to feel that it's a place where they can grow and develop. So how do you do that? Here are a number of things. One, separate out the performance review from the development review. Every person deserves both. Performance review is how did you do on your objectives? Mm. Period. Doesn't ask the question, what are you going to do differently? Because that's the development thing. You separate them. Two different conversations, six months apart. Mm. You know, if you do one in the afternoon, do one in the morning. If you do one in the office, do the other at lunch. Just make them different. Because if you combine the two, you waste both. Second, you have to, as a manager or as a leader, understand the personal sense of purpose and vision, the dream of the people working for you. Even if it's not to work for you, you need to understand it because that's where their heart is. And that's what's going to keep them going. To the extent that you understand it, and the best way to do that is to ask them about it, is for you to then use that and ask them periodically for ideas, for options. Uh, <clears throat> as a part of that, it's building a relationship in which there is mutual respect and caring. It's important to build a relationship. We now have over 40 studies proving this in all sorts of different industries, including innovation and high tech, that you have a shared sense of purpose or shared vision, not goals. Goals are, are useful, but they're micro. It's the big picture that you need. And you have to have some sense of energy. And if it's feasible, in, depending upon cultural norms, some degree of playfulness. When you can create relationships like that in your direct boss-subordinate relationships, your team relationships, when you have a sense of purpose and vision and values of what you stand for, when you think about what people want and the fact that a lot of people need novelty, they love the chance to try new things. Yeah. And so you try to merge all of that together with, you know, how do you create opportunities for everyone to feel like this year I'm growing and developing in these ways? and I'm delivering these performance issues. Because I think that if that happens, if we have that atmosphere, uh, what will happen is people will just give their all, they'll come together. And I don't know if you 
watch the Ted Lasso series because, you know, you're, although cricket is, I think, one of your major sports, football is pretty high on your list too. Yes, second in line. Right, right. So uh, I, I got a lot of kick out of watching the Ted Lasso series about, you know, the kind of um, quote unquote American mm. football coach. But but the concept is we need to do these things if we want to engage people's energy, if we want to have a, be a place where their talent is brought to bear on some of our shared issues. And And our research is showing that when we do that with folks, and people have these kind of relationships, leaders are emo using their emotional social intelligence and being positively infectious. They're infecting people with energy, uh, with possibility. And then people come together and do things that you didn't think before were possible at work or at home. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that was nicely placed. I think that's the culture I think we need to create um, as leaders. Um, because some of the, especially this part of the world, um, we always talk about performance, performance, talk about the reviews, and especially on the one, only once a year, right? End of the year we talk about, but again, your development aspect, where does it really boil down? And the question is, are we doing correctly the whole process as a question mark? So, wow, that, that was really amazing uh, context, Professor. Um, before I let you go, I want you something. Um, what would be one thing um, you would like to uh, you know, put it out for the leaders or the coaches who are listening. What would be one thing or one tip or golden nugget you would like to share in terms of coaching with your experience? Ask people one of two questions or both and keep asking. If your life were perfect in 10 to 15 years, what would it be like? Not work, life. Perfect. If it was ideal, 10 to 15 years, ask people to dream and talk about it. Mm. Do not get into planning. Do not worry about feasibility. Just talk about the dream. It turns out that it does things inside of you that open you up. And as soon as you get into planning, you're closing down. And so that covers the hope. And then the compassion is Ask people to reflect maybe once a week on who helped them the most and think of a person, think of a moment and remember it because wow. those two experiences of hope and compassion are very primal emotions that engage the human being, regardless of your culture, your race, your gender, your faith. It's a human brain heart issue. So, that's the time that we have. What a way to end hope and compassion. So that's the time that we have. My, those are my two key takeaways. Compassion is on top and having that hope is something really important and creating that coaching culture. You're talking about the great resignations. There you go. I think uh, Professor did share some fantastic stats and information for us. Uh, with that, uh, I'd like to thank Professor Dr. Richard Bratzitz uh, for his valuable time checking into the uh, cafe and sharing wonderful thought about creating the coaching culture and development through emotional intelligence. Of course, he's a lovely, wonderful person. You can get connected with, via his social media platform, especially on LinkedIn. And he have amazing uh, resource, full, uh, full of resources in terms of researchers. And please, please, please get hold of one of his book. My personal favorite is 
helping people change, which changed my life in a certain way of doing coaching. So again, Professor, thank you very much for your valuable time spending in the cafe and sharing your valuable thoughts and the knowledge and the experience with our audience. Thank you, Azim, and God bless. Thank you very much. Coaching explores the strengths and goals of your staff, stimulates creative thinking in them and addresses their behaviors and attitudes. As a coach, you act as a conduit to elicit greatness and empower the people that you manage. Change is hard. Ask anyone who has tried to switch careers, develop a new skill, improve relationship or break a bad habit. And yet, for most people, change will at some point be necessary, a critical step forward towards fulfilling their potential and achieving their goals, both at work and home. They will need support with this process. They will need a coach. In today's context, every organizational leader needs to be equipped with coaching. The reason is where it is no more complied to perform, where leaders need to inject compassion to perform. With the different generation coming into corporate world and with the availability of large amount of information, it is important to guide people through the platform of coaching. One thing to remember, providing feedback is not coaching. Coaching is about asking the right question to expand your people's mind to open up the possibilities through triggering positive emotional attractors. Dr. Richard Boyatzis did state that an individual to become effective on the job, what they do, they have to cognitive, emotional and social intelligence. As a coach, it's very important that we are develop self-awareness within ourselves to understand better, recognize others' emotion to have a conversation, and develop behavioral change in people. It's very important to understand that organizers need to have a culture of development as well as performance culture, and these two need to be complementing each other. People need to feel that this is the place to grow and develop. So, Dr. Richard Boyatzis points us these two important following points in terms of developing a coaching culture through emotional intelligence. Number one, separate development reviews from performance review. This should be two different conversations. Number two, understand the sense of purpose, vision and dreams of people working for you and ask them periodically for ideas to reach their desired vision. As a result, you will develop mutual respect and caring which ends up in as a relationship. On a final note, Dr. Richard Biate shared the keep asking the following questions. Number one, if your life is perfect in 10 to 15 years, what it would be like. 
ask people to dream and talk about it don't get into planning feasible to study there are things inside you need to be opened up this is where hope comes into picture number 2 ask people to reflect think of the people who help you and remember it it can be an occasion or a moment now this is compassion i believe this conversation was very beneficial for you and for your business my special thanks to dr richard bassis for spending his valuable time in the cafe do stay tuned in for the next episode where i'll be taking up another interesting topic in the cafe ei cafe with azim a 30 minutes of valuable learning keep listening keep learning and keep improving Thank you for tuning in to this episode of EI Cafe with Azim podcast. We are sure to hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, please do reach out to me. If you haven't subscribed to the show, don't forget to subscribe to the show which is available in all major podcast platforms so you are notified when the new episode is posted. Please do rate it, review and leave a comment and don't forget to share with your friends. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you're leaving some great things that can help you in your life every day. Please do follow me on social media Azim Sahil and do write us what topic from whom do you want to hear from where I will try to get them on board for you. Till I meet you in another episode. Checking out of the cafe. My name is Azim Sahil. Stay safe and God bless you.